0: Chapter 10, Part 1 of Kangaroo by D. H. Lawrence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Bryce Youngstown. Chapter 10, Diggers. They had another ferocious battle, Summers and Harriet. They stood opposite to one another in such fury, one against the other, that they nearly annihilated one another. He couldn't stay near her, so started walking off into the country. It was winter, but sunny and hot walking. He climbed steadily up and up the high road between the dense, damp jungle that grew at the base and up the steep rise of the Torface, which he wanted to get to the top of. Strange birds made weird, metallic noises. Tree ferns rose on their notchy little trunks, and great mosses tangled in with more ordinary bushes. Overhead rose the gum trees, sometimes with great stark dead limbs thrown up, sometimes hands over like pine trees. He sweated up the steep road till at last he came to the top. There, on the farther side, the dip slope, the hill sank and ran in spurs. All fairly densely wooded, but not like the scarp slope up which he had toiled the scarp slope was jungle impenetrable with tree ferns and bunchy cabbage palms and mosses like bushes a thick matted undergrowth beneath the boles of the trees but the dip slope was bush gum trees rather scattered and a low undergrowth like heath the same lonely unbreakable silence and loneliness that seemed to him the real bush curiously unapproachable to him the mystery of the bush seems to recede from you as you advance and then it is behind you if you look round lonely and weird and hoary he went on till they could look over the tor's edge at the land below there was a scalloped seashore for miles and the strip of flat coastland sometimes a mile wide sprinkled as far as the eye could reach with the pale gray zinc roofs of the bungalows all scattered like crystals in the loose cells of the dark tree tissue of the shore. It was suggestive of Japanese landscape, dark trees, and little single scattered toy houses. Then the bays of the shore, the coal jetty, far off rocks down the coast, and long white lines of breakers. But he was looking, mostly straight below him, at the massed foliage of the cliff slope, down into the center of the great dull green whorls of the tree ferns, and on to the shaggy mops of the cabbage palms. In one place a long fall of creeper was yellowish with damp flowers. Gum trees came up in tufts. The previous world. The world of the coal age. The lonely, lonely world that had waited, it seemed, since the coal age. These ancient flat-topped tree ferns, these tousled palms like mops. What was the good of trying to be an alert, conscious man here? You couldn't drift drift into a sort of obscurity backwards into a nameless past hoary as the country is hoary strange old feelings wake in the soul old non-human feelings and an old old indifference like a torpor invades the spirit an old saurian torpor who wins there was the land sprinkled with dwellings as with granulated sugar there was a black smoke of steamers on the high pale sea and a whiteness of steam from a colliery among the dull trees was the land awake would the people wake in this ancient land or would the land put them to sleep drift them back into the torpid semi-consciousness of the world of the twilight summers felt a torpor coming over him he hung there on the parapet looking down and he didn't care how profoundly darkly he didn't care there are no problems for the soul in its dark and wide-eyed torpor neither harriet nor kangaroo nor jazz nor even the world worlds come and worlds go even worlds and when the old old influence of the fern world comes over man how can he care he breathes the fern seed and drifts back becomes darkly half vegetable devoid of preoccupations even the never slumbering urge of sex sinks down into something darker more monotonous incapable of caring like sex in trees the dark world before conscious responsibility was born a queer bird sat hunched on a bough a few yards away just below a bird like a bunch of old rag with a small rag of a dark tail and a fluffy pale top like an owl and a sort of frill round his neck he had a long sharp dangerous beak but he too was sunk in unutterable apathy a kookaburra some instinct made him know that somers was watching so he just shoveled round on the bow and sat with his back to the man and became utterly oblivious somers watched and wondered then he whistled no change then he clapped his hands the bird looked over its shoulder in surprise what it seemed to say is there somebody alive is that alive somebody it had quite a handsome face with the exquisite long dagger beak it slowly took somers in then he clapped again making an effort the bird spread quite big wings and whirred in a queer flickering flight to a bow a dozen yards farther off and then it clotted again ah well thought somers life is so big and has such huge anti worlds of gray twilight how can one care about anything in particular He went home again and had forgotten the quarrel and forgotten marriage or revolutions or anything, drifted away into the grey pre-world where men didn't have emotions, where men didn't have emotions and personal consciousness, but were shadowy like trees and on the whole silent, with numb brains and slow limbs and a great indifference. But Harriet was waiting for him rather wistful and loving him rather quiveringly, and yet even in the quiver of her passion with some of this indifference this twilight indifference of the fern world jack and victoria came for the weekend and summers and calcott met in a much nearer sympathy than they had ever known before victoria was always thrilled and fascinated by both the summers they had an inexhaustible fascination for her the tones of their voices their manner their way with each other she could not understand the strange sureness they had in themselves, the sureness of what they were saying or going to say, the sureness of what they were feeling. For herself, her words fluttered out of her without her direct control, and her feelings fluttered in her the same. She was one perpetually agitated, dove cod of words and emotions, always trying consciously to find herself amid the whirl, and never quite succeeding. She thought someone might tell her whereas the Summers had an unconscious sureness, something that seemed really royal to her. But she had in the last issue the twilight indifference of the fern world. Only she still quivered for the light. Poor Victoria. She clung to Jack's arm vibrating, always needing to vibrate outwards, and he seemed to become more Australian and apathetic every week. The great indifference, the darkness of the fern world, upon his mind. Then spurts of energy, spurts of sudden violent desire, spurts of gambling excitement, but the mind in a kind of twilight sleep. He made no more appeals, he was just static and quite gentle. Even at table he was half oblivious of the presence of the other people. Then Victoria would poke him with her elbow, poke him hard into consciousness, and bring back the lively Jack that the Summers had first known strange that the torpor had come on him so completely of late yet there was a queer light in his eyes as if he might do something dangerous and when he was once talking he was perfectly logical and showed surprising calm common sense when he was discussing or criticizing he seemed so unusually sane as to be peculiar like a man in his sleep just outside the station was the football field and mullen Bimbi was playing woolen Molen Bimby in royal blue and Wolandindi in rather faded red. Along the roadside, buggies and motorcars were pulled up. The ponies were taken out of harness and left to feed on the roadside grass. Two riders sat on horseback to survey the scene. And under the flowering coral trees with their sharp red cockatoo flowers stood men in their best clothes smoking pipes, or men in their best clothes squatting on the fence, and lasses mingling in or strolling past in white silk stockinette frocks, or pink crepe de chine, or muslin. Just like prostitutes, arm-in-arm strolled the lasses, airing themselves and their pronounced hips, and the man apathetically took no notice but watched the field. This scene was too much for Jack Talcott. Summers or no summers, he must be there. So there he stood in his best clothes and a cream velour hat, and a short pipe staring with his long naked australian face impassive on the field the blues and the reds darted madly about like strange bird creatures rather than men they were mostly blond with hefty legs and with prominent round buttocks that worked madly inside the little white cotton shorts and jack with his dark eyes watched as if it was doomsday occasionally the tail end of a smile would cross his face Occasionally he would take his pipe stem from his mouth and give a bright look into a vacancy and say, See that? Heaven knows what it was that he saw. The game? The skill? Yes, but more the motion, the wild combative motion. And most of all, fate. Fate had a fascination for him. It was the only real point of curiosity left in him. How would chance work things out? Chance. Now then, how would chance settle it? Even the football field, with its widely scurrying blues and bits of red, was only a frenzied shuffling of fate with men for the instruments. The living instruments of fate, and how would it work out, how would it work out? He could have stood there, static, with his little pipe till doomsday, waiting for fate to settle it. The wild scurrying motion and the jumps in the air, of course, made his heart beat faster. Towards the close, one of the chaps got a kick in the jaw and was knocked out they couldn't finish the game. Hard lines. Jack was a queer sight to Summers when he was in this brightly vacant mood, not a man at all, but a chance thing, gazing spellbound on the evolutions of chance. And in this state, this very Australian state, you could hardly get a word out of him. Or when he broke into a little volley of speech you listened with wonder to the noise of it, as if a weird animal had suddenly given voice the indifference the marvelous bedrock indifference not the static fatalism of the east but an indifference based on real recklessness an indifference with a deep flow of loose energy beneath it ready to break out like a geyser ready to break into a kind of frenzy a berserk frenzy running amok in wild generosity or still more wild smashing up the wild joy in letting loose in a smash up but will he ever let loose or will the static patience settle deeper and the fern twilight altogether envelop him the slow transmutation what does today matter or this country time is so huge and in australia the next step back is to the fern age the township looked its queerest as dusk fell then the odd electric lights shone at rather wide intervals the wide unmade roads of rutted earth seemed to belong again to the wild in the semi-dark, and the low bungalows with the doors open and the light showing seemed like shacks in the wilderness, a settlement in the fierce gloom of the wilderness. Then youths dashed fiercely on horseback down the soft roads, standing in the stirrups and crouching over the neck of the thin, queer brown racehorses that sprinted along like ghosts, and the young baker, in emulation, dashed through the village on his cream pony a collier who had been staying somewhere cantered stiffly away into the dark on a pony like a rocking-horse young maidens in cotton dresses stood at the little rail gates of their bungalow homes talking to young men in a buggy or to a young man on foot or to the last tradesman's cart or to youths who were strolling past it was evening and the intense dusk of the far-off land and white folks peering out of the dusk almost like aborigines far-off land just as far off when you are in it, nay, then furthest off. The evening came very dark, with lightning playing pallid in the southeast over the sea. There was nothing to be done with Jack but to play drafts with him. He wasn't in a real sporting mood, so he let himself be beaten even at drafts. When he was in a sporting mood he could cast a spell of confusion over summers, and win every time, with a sort of gloating but when he wasn't in a sporting mood he would shove up his men recklessly and lose them he didn't care he just leaned back and stretched himself in that intense physical way which somers thought just a trifle less than human the man was all body a strong body full of energy like a machine that has got steam up but is inactive he had no mind no spirit no soul just a tense inactive body and an eye rather glazed and a trifle bloodshot the old psyche slowly disintegrating meanwhile victoria in a trill of nervous excitement and exaltation was talking europe with harriet victoria was just the opposite of jack she was all a quiver of excited consciousness to know to see to realize she would almost have done anything to be able to look at life look at the inside of it see it in its intimacy she had had wild ideas of being a stewardess on a boat a chambermaid in a hotel a waitress in a good restaurant a hospital nurse anything so that she could see the intimacies touch the private mysteries to travel seemed to her the great desirable to go to europe and india and see it all she loved australia loved it far more quiveringly and excitedly than he but it wasn't australia that fascinated her it was the secret intimacies of life and what other folks felt that strange and aboriginal indifference that was bottommost in him seemed like a dynamo in her. She fluttered in the air like a loose, live nerve, a nerve of the sympathetic system. She was all sympathetic drive, and he was nearly all check. He sat there, apathetic, nothing but body and solid, steady, physical indifference. He did not oppose her at all, or go counter to her. He was just the heavy opposite pole of her energy and of course she belonged to him as one pole belongs to the other pole in a circuit. And he, he would stretch his body continuously, but he would not go to bed, though Somers suggested it. No, there he sat. So Somers joined in the more exciting conversation of the women, and Jack sat solidly there. Whether he listened or whether he didn't, who knows? The aboriginal sympathetic apathy was upon him, He was like some creature that has lost its soul and simply stares the morning was one of the loveliest australian mornings perfectly golden all the air pure gold the great gold effulgence to seaward and the pure cold pale blue inland over the dark range the wind was blowing from inland the sea was quiet as a purring cat with white paws becoming darkish green-blue flecked with innumerable white flecks like rain spots splashing the surface of a pool the horizon was a clear and hard and dark sea against an almost white sky but from far behind the horizon showed the mirage magic tops of hazed gold-white clouds it seemed as if they indicated the far pacific isles though it was cold jack was about sauntering in his shirt sleeves with his waistcoat open and his hands in his pockets rather to the vexation of victoria pull yourself together jack dear do put your collar and tie on she coaxed him fondling him in a minute he said the indifference the fern dark indifference of this remote golden australia not to care from the bottom of one's soul not to care overpowered in the twilight of fern adore just to keep enough grip to run the machinery of the day and beyond that to let yourself drift not to think or strain or make any effort to consciousness whatsoever. That was Jack sauntering down there in his shirt sleeves with his waistcoat open showing his white shirt, his strong neck bare, sauntering with his hands in his pocket beside Summers at the water's edge. Summers wore a dark flannel jacket and his necktie hung dark and broke the intimacy of the white shirt breast. The two women stood on the cliff, the low bushy cliff, looking down harriet was in a plain dress of dark-colored purplish and brown hand-woven stuff of cotton and silk mixture with old silver lace round the collar victoria in a pale green knitted dress so they stood in the morning light watching the men on the fawn-colored sand by the sea-fringe waiting to wave when they looked up jack looked up first the two women cooeyed and waved he took his pipe from his mouth and held it high in his hand in answer a strange signal The pale green wisp of Victoria in the sky was part of his landscape, but the darker figure of Harriet had for some reason a menace to him up there. He suddenly felt as if he were down below. He suddenly realized the need to bethink himself. He turned to Summers, looking down and saying in his peculiar Australian tone, Well, I suppose we'd better be going up. The curious note of obedience in The Manly Twang. Victoria made him put on coat and collar and tie for breakfast. Yes, dear, come on. I'll tie your tie for you. I suppose a man was born to give in, said he, with laconic good humor and obstinacy. But he was a little uneasy. He realized the need to gather himself together. You get like the rest of them, Victoria scolded him in a coaxing tone. You used to be so smart, and you promised me you'd never go slack like they all are didn't you you bad boy i forget said he but nevertheless the constraint of breakfast pulled him up because harriet really disapproved and he didn't know what was inside that rose and brown purple cloud of her the ancient judgment of the old world so he gathered himself somewhat together but he was so far fern lost from the old world my god thought Somers. These are the men Kangaroo wants to build up a new state with. End of chapter 10, Diggers, part 1. Recording by Bryce Youngstown.